Welcome to Acamedia, a podcast brought to you by the Society for... Sin- Wait. Oh, All right, no, so I close. I can't. Is it of or for? Society for. Of. For. For. It's not All a right. society of studies. It's the right. society for those who study. <laughs> well, the problem, I'd always get confused with the journal of and society for. So, okay. And I'm only going to be like secretary of it soon. Like you'd think the secretary <laughs> would be able to get their, her ofs and fors right. Welcome to Acamedia, a podcast brought to you by the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. And I believe by it's actually uh, Society at the Society Cinema and Media Studies. under, around, adjacent yeah. to. <laughs> we could uh, play preposition bingo. We could, we could. Let's make a new name. You know, they can they change it not long ago. They could change it again. Society uh, against I, cinema and media studies. <laughs> there might be some who who b- believe that. Uh, Probably. But no, I am Christine Becker. I'm Michael Kackman. And we are excited to bring you another exciting installment of the OG Acamedia podcast. We have a couple spinoffs now, so we just want to make sure you're back at the mothership now here That's with, right. with Acamedia. Back at the mothership with a super cool episode and uh, interview produced by you. I am extremely excited about this, partly just because I'm emotionally invested in the subject matter, but also just speaking from a distance. I think it's a really great conversation, both about scholarship and research and archives and really fun stuff, I think. And you're going to learn a lot about a fascinating human being who there's a good chance you knew nothing about going into this. So it's super bonuses all around in this episode. It's cool. It's got catchphrases. It's got uh, jingles. Mm, you're going to have a jingle stuck in your head for the rest of the day. So you're welcome for that. And we'll also check in about some other uh, business going on in the in our little world here. You haven't even told us who the interview is with. I have not. No, let's get to that then. So this involves, uh, first of all, the university where you and I went to grad school, uh, Michael, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Oh, yeah, At I the university. That. Yeah, remember the uh, Wisconsin Historical Society and then within the Wisconsin Historical Society, the Wisconsin Center for for film and theater research, uh, an archive of all kinds of good stuff, movies, TV, radio, theater research. And so I researched back in the day, in the 1990s, a TV personality named Faye Emerson. Zoom ahead to the current decade, and there's a PhD candidate there who also researched in that uh, archive of Faye Emerson, and then an archivist uh, who helped uh, this student find this research. And so we're going to bring you a conversation then. I'm going to talk about the research I did on Faye Emerson decades ago. Uh, Maureen Mock is going to talk about the research that she has recently done. And then tying it all together in the archive, uh, Mary Helsbeck, Assistant Director of Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research, is going to talk about uh, this collection from the archivist perspective. So this is a really cool conversation. Um, let me give you just a little more info about Maureen Mock. She's a PhD candidate in the Communication Arts Department at Wisconsin-Madison, focusing on media and cultural studies. She has a decade of experience serving in Los Angeles as a television standards and practices executive and an environmental activist. She's currently researching and writing her dissertation, studying the intertwined relationship between parents, policy, and industry as it relates to television history and the current platformed 
uh, platformized media landscape. And she recently won first place in uh, from SCMS, an award for her article entitled Politics is Everybody's Business, Resurrecting Faye Emerson, America's Forgotten First Lady of Television. So that's what you're going to learn all about today, the Forgotten First Lady of Television. Very, very good stuff. You know, this, this conversation uh, will conjure not only the... Uh, the sights and the feel of the of the archive, but honestly, something you'll get some of the sounds, but also the smell. Like what's one of the things I remember about that uh, building? I know what it smells like. I can like <laughs> I can paint a word picture uh, just just um, by imagining the smells of that place, which yeah, sounds a little the- gross and a little weird, but people who've I been there would know. Yeah, anyone who's who's researched an archive, especially there's that. When you're there for, you know, you get there in the morning and you leave in the afternoon and uh, you're often not allowed to have anything with you, maybe not even a laptop, just, you know, paper to take notes with. Maybe that's back in the day. I don't know about now, but um, you really start to pay close attention to all of the details around you because you have nothing else to pay attention to. So all of the little sounds and sights and, as you say, smells really do stand out. They do. And so, yeah, there's a conversation with Maureen Mock and then Mary Helsbeck, assistant director of the Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research. She received her library and information science degree from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. All right. Take it away. All right, I'm really excited to have this conversation. We've got Maureen Mock here. Hi, Maureen. Hello. Hi, Chris. And also Mary Helsbeck. Hey, Chris. All right. Thank you both so much for joining me and uh, super excited to share with the world our stories about Faye Emerson and about life in the archive. And uh, I figured as a starting point, you all listeners need to know who Faye Emerson is. And part of her story is that not nearly enough people know who she is. And so I thought I could call on Maureen to start us out there with with telling us uh, who Faye Emerson was and why she she matters, basically. So Faye Emerson was at one point considered the first lady of television, hosting a show uh, which aired from 1949 to 1951 called The Faye Emerson Show on CBS. So Faye Emerson is one of America's original TV personalities. She hosted this early CBS 15-minute late-night talk show three days a week, uh, went on to host another show called Wonderful Town. Both were sponsored by Pepsi-Cola. And she was a big star. She was a massive television personality in the budding TV arena. And before that, she uh, was a film actress and worked her way uh, through a bunch of different uh, films in the 1940s. And while she was out in Los Angeles, she met her future husband, Colonel Elliot Roosevelt of the Roosevelt family. Uh, They were introduced at a party by Howard Hughes. And right after they got married, they moved out to New York, which was the kind of epicenter of television at that time. And she got a break and ended up hosting one of the earliest late night television shows during that time called The Faye Emerson Show. Yeah, and the importance of her to early TV is really unsung. And that's partly how I ended up researching uh, her. And and I think that's what we can turn to next is our relationship with researching Faye Emerson. And in particular, we wanted to talk about the archival materials that are available about her. So also to fill in viewers, I want to describe that. So this is materials at the Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research. Just bear with me as I I read this because I 
wanted to impress upon people like all the goodies that are in this collection. So um, we have the papers of actress Faye Emerson reflecting her private and professional life, particularly her work in television, radio, film, and theater, included as extensive biographical information consisting of clippings, chronologies, research materials compiled by her son, William Crawford III, um, his tape-recorded interviews with Ms. Emerson's associates, a draft biography by Mr. Crawford, and a book about the family written by Ms. Emerson's mother. There are also press releases, clippings, and reviews uh, relating to her public appearances. There's correspondence, memorabilia, awards, contracts, radio and TV scripts, theater programs and playbills, transcripts of interviews with Ms. Emerson, drafts and clippings of Ms. Emerson's newspaper column and other articles written by her, extensive photographs of Ms. Emerson, her family and friends, including second husband Elliot Roosevelt and third husband Skitch Henderson. Disc recordings of her radio and TV programs, kinescopes of her TV programs, The Faye Emerson Show and Faye Emerson's Wonderful Town, and a few home movies, if that wasn't enough. So there's nearly 3,000 photographs, six disc recordings, 20 tape recordings, and 371 film reels. So that's a lot of goodies in the archive. And that's why I wanted to start... Uh, our conversation then kind of sharing our first introduction to these materials and what thoughts and inspirations they conjured up for us. And and I'm going to start that conversation because I go back the, the longest with this. I was doing my dissertation research in the uh, mid to late 90s. My dissertation is about Hollywood film stars on 1950s TV. And so, you know, you're looking for anything that could work as case studies. And so the first place I went, Wisconsin Center for Film and Theater Research, and saw this collection there. And I thought, okay, who is this woman? Never heard of her. And then saw this incredible bound of stuff. And anyone out there trying to do research, especially on a person, you know what a joy it is to find in an archive, someone who's already, for instance, put together all the clippings, right? I mean, it just saves an immense amount of time and somebody's already compiled all these clippings. But the other thing I discovered, as is indicated in that summary of the collection, um, this was compiled by her son, William Crawford III, also known as Scoop. And um, he passed away before he could do what he wanted with this material, which was to write a book about her. And so finding these materials, discovering who she was, thinking about the fact that this is something, you know, her son put together with great love for her and wanting to have the world learn more about her. It felt like an honor even just to access this material, let alone to be able to, you know, end up doing work on it and, and writing um, a chapter about her that became an article. It became my job talk. So it became professionally important to me. But personally, it was like, wow, this is incredible. And, and it really felt like an honor to be able to access this material. Each day going into the archive and seeing more material on her, I just became really, really amazed and impressed with her. Um, and particularly the prototypical feminism that she brought to her television show and, you know, including political topics that she would address. And, you know, she was willing to be confrontational to men and things that just kind of blew me away that I hadn't imagined any woman on 1950s TV could do those things. So it was really eye opening for me. So, Maureen, then what thoughts do you have about your first digging into the archival materials on Emerson? My first course starting my PhD program here, also at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, was historiography with Dr. Eric Hoyt. And we were lucky enough as a seminar to have Mary come in and speak to our class uh, to describe the importance of the archives and hint at a couple, basically drop a couple Easter eggs of things we might want to consider looking at, you know, and we all, we all listened and I, and she actually shared a clip of Faye Emerson at that point and talked about her and everything was so new to me at that moment, kind of jumping back into grad school after working in the industry for years. And I, I assumed that I was the only one that hadn't heard of Faye Emerson. You know, the way Mary was kind of talking about how incredible she was. I was thinking, wow, I've really like missed this 
big time TV personality. So I went into the archive with a different plan of what I was going to look at. I wanted to actually wanted to study late night television. It was right at that point in 2016 where Jimmy Kimmel was getting a lot of flack for uh, speaking out on healthcare and getting involved with politics and uh, pointing out some of the problems of the Trump presidency and breaking down on air. And people were telling Kimmel to stay in his lane and stick to comedy. Uh, so I, I had an inkling that there was probably other late night hosts that had done that before him. So I kind of wanted to follow that trail. And I kept, you know, pestering Mary. Like, so uh, what do we have? Like Johnny Carson. Like, <laughs> do I have any Johnny Carson? Jack Barr. Uh, going as deep as I could think. And she consistently mentioned Faye Emerson. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, to me, obviously, there was never a early late night host uh, who was a woman. And so finally I said, all right, let me see the Faye Emerson vibe. So we pulled out like three cartons and Chris, what you talk about, like, it was just like cue the movie music of like magical, like <laughs> transportation to a different planet. And I swear, I feel like Faye wanted you to find her. <laughs> And and we were perhaps scoop and you know also to the same with us that like thank you thank you for opening these seven cartons uh, because immediately you, it was just kind of the intimacy of the archive you're pawing through her her notes and her her recipes and her photos uh, and her little scraps of paper that she talks about where she put her little trivia questions for you know that she would later use in quiz shows and she was incredible and so I had you know very quickly realized that. I connected this dot to say, wait a second, th this was considered late night, the Faye Emerson show. This was the latest show on air. At it was like 11 p.m., right? Yeah. And, you know, and it depend they had a little bit of a feed finally getting out to the West Coast. Uh, so that did air earlier, you know, and it kept changing as television kept morphing to allow it to be later. Like nobody expected television Nobody thought anybody would be watching TV after dinner. Uh, so Faye, you know, kind of said, well, we're going to we're going to change that. And she took that slot. She took that opportunity and made something of it. And you, then you start to see watching once we were able to get some of the kinescopes rescued and restored enough to even play. It's really starting to dive into the theatrical aspects of how that stage was set, how it was shot, uh, the format of her show that you really, I see so many patterns that she established that, you know, carried over into late night as well. So it was fantastic. I dreamed about her. <laughs> it was, you know, it was, it was an honor to write. So I wrote my first, my very first PhD paper, my first semester, um, and then had great notes from my professor and kept revising it and actually entered it into the SCMS research paper contest and won, which was honestly the honor of a lifetime. It was really, really special and cool. And with that, it ended up being uh, eventually with lots and lots of more changes and revisions getting published in JCMS. Well, and maybe then uh, there, there's like a certain blessing that comes with working with her uh, for, on her material, because actually uh, I mentioned my job talk was about Faye Emerson. Um, and that's, you know, at, at the job I still have at University of Notre Dame. And I remember one of the people who were there, Jill Godmolo, brought up because one other thing we haven't mentioned about her yet is um, she was known for her cleavage. Um, she wore low cut dresses early in her career and she was uh, known as putting the V in TV. 
And so I talked about that in my job talk and particularly how that became controversial and that the television code ended up incorporating rules about how low cut your dresses could be. And so Jill came up to me afterward and she said, I'm so impressed that you know, you're talking about like a woman's boobs during your job talk. She thought that was like really bold that I would, <laughs> that I would do that during job talk. So, so Faye Emerson helped me get my job at Notre Dame too. It's amazing. Yeah. So then Mary, could you talk a little bit then from the archivist perspective, what you thought about when you first um, started delving into seeing what was in that collection? Yeah. So I had no idea who Faye Emerson was before I started working at the center in March of 2012. And I found her because there were some cans of film from her show on one of the shelves in the workroom. And, you know, I asked Maxine Fleckner-Ducey, the center's longtime film archivist, who's Faye Emerson? You know, who is, who is this person? What is this show about? And she said, oh, she's fabulous. You need to watch. Mm-hmm. So I pulled a few cans off the shelf and watched them. And like both of you just became really intrigued and, and fascinated and, and fell in love with Faye. So it was definitely a collection we've really tried to champion. And, you know, when people like both of you discover it and take interest in it and start using it, that's when one of the really rewarding aspects of archival work is helping people find those collections and helping people learn more about someone who people should know about, like Faye Emerson. And uh, I think now would be a good time for a clip because we've teased you with a lot about her and uh, we want you to hear her now. So uh, we're going to play a clip from uh, her show, The Faye Emerson Show, here. Hello. This is Faye Emerson for Pepsi-Cola. I am going to write a novel. I've got everything you need here. I have pencils. I have paper. I have a dictionary. All I need is an idea. Pepsi-Cola hits the spot. Big, big bottle, and it's got bounce, 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 bounce. Go get Pepsi for the Pepsi bounce. Now go get Pepsi for the Pepsi bounce. More bounce to the ounce, more bounce to the ounce. Go get Pepsi for the Pepsi bounce. Then why take less when Pepsi's best? More bounce to the ounce and Pepsi. I have here tonight a novel, a first novel, a yet, as yet unpublished novel. A lady wrote me a letter and told me about her novel and said that she was having a little trouble getting it published, didn't know how to, how to go about it. So she's here tonight with her novel and with some friends who I think can tell us something about it. I'd like you to meet them now. First of all, Mrs. Guido Brigiani, Emily Brigiani. She is our yeah. budding author. And now I would like you to meet a very famous author, Miss Betty Smith, author of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and uh, Tomorrow Will Be Better. Is that right, yes. Betty? Yes. And uh, this is Miss... Annie Laurie Williams, who is one of the country's top literary agents. She handles uh, one of our most famous authors, one of my best friends, John Steinbeck, and also the very great John Hersey, who uh, wrote The Wall and the great story on the atom bomb. Mm -hmm. What was the name of that? Uh, Hiroshima. 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 Now then, well now before we go any farther, I see that you've been neglected, Emily. Come on, let you and I have a Pepsi and do a little preliminary work, and we'll be back in a minute. Excuse us, will you? You know, as a matter of fact, I've always wanted to write a novel. As a matter of fact, I guess everybody's always wanted to write a novel. But there's one thing you wouldn't have to write a book about. You don't need that many words to tell you about how good Pepsi-Cola is. Because friendly, famous Pepsi-Cola with its famous more bounce to the ounce is very simple to explain. Its appeal is for men, women, and children alike. Its wonderful wake-up tang just makes any party go. But it doesn't even have to be a party just any time of day. Now, do what I ask you, won't you? 
Remember that Pepsi-Cola's big, big bottle gives you more for your money, too. It just makes sense. Why take less when Pepsi's best? So the next time you're at your grocer's, get a carton, will you? Take home several cartons, as a matter of fact. That's the way to do it. Right? Cheers. Now, Emily, let you and me go over and talk to our friends over yeah. here. Got to take this book with us. Oh, this is a heavy one, too. And I hope you especially got a, a sense of just how great she was at hosting a talk show, too. Um, I'm going to ask Maureen in a second to reflect on that, particularly given her, you know, her research and talking about late night. But, you know, I remember being in the archive and, and watching those kinescopes and these were, you know, 15 minute episodes. So you could watch a bunch of them in a row. And how many times I heard her say those things of like more bounce to the ounce or that wake up tang. And it sounded each time like it was the first time she said it. She was just so good at, you know, expressing that that slogan with excitement and sounding like, in fact, that she herself had Tang. Um, so she was just really good at just the job, period. Watching Famerson do her job, she was fantastic at moving between this sponsorship language that she clearly included with every you know jingle and introduction and bringing on big name uh, talent and then small name people and sometimes having them in the same room and carrying on this very interesting conversation. And you could see her just negotiate and balance between massive personalities while all kind of sitting in a living room setting and finding just the perfect break to pour everybody a, you know, more bounce to the ounce <laughs> Pepsi Cola. And the range of talent, like the range of guests that she would bring on this, on the show was really fascinating. And I mean, she brought her, a person who would become her future, her next husband, uh, Skitch Henderson onto the show and flirted with him ridiculously. At one point she like patted him on the shoulder <laughs> while he was playing the piano and called him a bad boy. Uh, so like, I don't know if Elliot was watching that. They were already having a lot of problems in their marriage, but it probably didn't help. Um, you know, they had Burl Ives and Edith Piaf, wrestlers and the Weavers, you know, all kinds of different personalities. But also she would talk a lot about big, t- heavy politics. So in one episode, it would be, I call this lighter, but you could really read into this too, like for girls who act like tomboys uh, and how to how to give them denim dungarees that are a little bit more girlish, you know? So there'd be one episode along those lines. You know, there was an episode on clowns. There was an episode on silly putty. There would be holiday episodes. And then there would be an episode about, are we going to war with Korea? You know, yeah. and that was actually a key one, which we should come back to as well. And uh, the United Nations was launching then. And seeing that Eleanor Roosevelt was Faye Emerson's beloved mother-in-law, and they stayed close way past their mar- uh, her marriage to Eleanor's son, that United Nations figured in um, heavily. So, you know, there's all these world issues happening. It's 1949, 1950. The world is a little bit on edge about communism and nuclear war and Cold War. So she would dive into these meaty topics, like, cautiously, but infuse enough opinion. She wasn't a dummy. For the, for the blonde and the cleavage, this is one of the most intellectual, intelligent, well-read people that you could ever hope for to be a personality on air or to potentially you know, represent you in an in office. And later, she was actually asked to run for Senate and declined, uh, but wrote that in her obituary, which I think just kind of shows how proud she was of that offer. So she, you know, in one moment, she'd be talking about juvenile delinquency. And the next thing they're talking about, will there be a war in Korea? Off camera, she also worked to support Democratic candidates. She did a lot of stumping for different people. She has the invitation to the JFK, JFK inauguration in her files. 
And, you know, with that came some very interesting moments of fear of blacklisting. She was at one point, there was a particular reporter who really had it out for her and was constantly just really trying to write damaging articles about her and was saying that she was a left-wing communist and pointed out her, at one point she had supported Dwight Eisenhower while she was married to Roosevelt and said that she was a member of the Progressive Citizens of America. So she, she was angry. She never let anybody run over her. So she wrote, there's a telegram in her files about how she wrote to the paper directly demanding that that statement be retracted, noting the only organization she'd ever belonged to was the Democratic Party. So there was these sprinkled attempts by various conservative media to target Faye Emerson and her progressive politics and call them communist in nature. But she was so quick to renounce those claims and jump on them that it never stuck as it shouldn't have. Yeah. And you mentioned the episode about Korea. I really vividly remember that one. Just really striking boldness and and still, well, like in a living room drinking Pepsi with people like that ability to talk in this kind of heightened way while still casually hanging out on a living room set with people. Another interesting thing she did with some of her shows is she would do like a, a mail episode, you know, every every quarter or so where she would read her fan letters and also she would read her anti-fan letters, you know. So she had she had a whole host of followers and people who would write in as one did in the Times. And so she would in one moment read her mail and, you know, obviously she knew what she was getting into before she would open these letters. But compliments to, hey, what were, what are those earrings that you're wearing to there was complaints about the, her cleavage per se. And she actually put it out to her audience. Like she just knew how to embrace her audience. So she said, you know what? I want to hear from you. You tell me, should I raise my, my necklines or keep them where they are? Uh, so, you know, that was very smart. <laughs> she, that just generated a whole new host of interesting mail. And actually in the end, they said to keep them where they were. But one of the bigger episodes, when you talk about, so Chris, you had written about this Korea episode, and I w- wanted to watch both the Korea episode and then the follow-on mail episode, where she got some feedback about what she, some of the conversations in that will there be war with Korea, and we couldn't get it. The kinescope was in such poor form that I couldn't watch it. So I was relying on a, oh, a lot wow. of the work that you had done to in kind of transcriptions to figure out and kind of triangulate everything. Eventually, with the help of Mary and Amy Sloper, we were able to get it digitized and rescued, which was wonderful. But that male episode that followed after she had the different uh, personalities on talking about Korea was phenomenal. And guess what, listeners? We have a clip of this. So it went from irretrievable archival object now directly to your ears. So this is Faye Emerson answering viewer mail in a 1951 episode. Hello. It's Emerson again. I really, every now and then, like to do a show just about the mail, because we get such a lot of wonderful mail. Now, here's one. I want to read this because I don't quite agree with this gentleman, but uh, he certainly has a right to say what he thinks. Maybe a lot of you think the same way, and I want to find out. He said, you were very much in error when, in a recent interview with foreign correspondents, you stated it was the general impression in the United States that there would be a war. Well, I don't think I said it quite that way. But at any rate, and then he goes on to say, in the first place, it contradicts Secretary Atchison's answer to the Marine that we are fighting in Korea to prevent a war. In the second place, it leaves us open to be accused as warmongers by Russia, which the Indian delegate probably now believes. Then he winds up with what I wanted to talk about. He says, better stick to the plunging neckline, Faye. Politics is not for little girls. 
Signed it Frank Havens from Wethersfield, Connecticut. Well, now, Mr. Havens, I, um, I think you have a perfect right to say what you think and to tell me about it. But I don't think that's true altogether. I think politics is everybody's business. And um, I'm not a very little girl either. So if you don't mind, every now and then, at least I'm going to do a little thinking about it. I'll try not to jam my opinions down your throat, though. But at any rate, thanks for your interest. Slacks. I know that's an ugly word where men are concerned, but today I wore for you what I wear at home when I'm watching television. Thought you might be interested in seeing it. They're black silk Chinese trousers and a raw silk um, Shantung top. I got them at Gumpson, San Francisco, and they couldn't be more comfortable. If your husband doesn't object to this, why, it's uh, very nice to wear around the house in the evening. Really amazing stuff there. And the uh, the sly, I'm not a little girl comment is so great. That moment was the best <laughs> forever worship. You know, she was a feminist ahead of her time. Uh, and it was just a beautiful moment in Faye Emerson timelines. So Mary, then uh, let's bring you in, especially then that idea of like working with this materials and deciding what's going to get digitized, like what's going to get prioritized. Um, so any thoughts about that working with those materials? Yeah, so... At the time Maureen was working on her paper, uh, we weren't able to digitize those prints in-house because our scanner was old and it was in need of repair. So we, we had to get money to send those out to be digitized by an outside vendor. So that was a challenge. But now, thanks to the generosity of uh, a number of alumni, we have a brand new preservation film scanner. So we're able to digitize any film prints we want in-house. And in fact, we have started in the winter going through and systematically digitizing all of the prints from the Faye Emerson collection, both the Faye Emerson Show and Wonderful Town USA. So we're digitizing them not only for preservation purposes, because again, these prints are from 1950. They're old. They weren't always stored in the best of conditions. So there is some deterioration going on. But we're able to digitize in them now, not only for access, but also for preservation purposes. So anyone will be able to watch them. You know, I love particularly the idea that this is in the process of being restored. And both the notion of, you know, because it was there in the first place, and then because researchers are using it, and because we have great archivists like Mary um, to put this stuff forth. It's sort of, I feel like we're, we're finally getting somewhere with, you know, fulfilling Scoop's dream, and, and with especially putting Faye Emerson on the TV history map, where she really, really has belonged for many years. So I wonder if we could speak also then a little bit going forward about what we hope to see from this material in the future. And uh, Maureen, you're working on some additional things tied to Faye Emerson? Yeah. So, you know, we the article came out in Cinema Media Studies called Politics is Everybody's Business. And with that generated some interest from actually uh, a couple like major media outlets who are looking to rewrite Faye Emerson back into television history. So both from a documentary perspective and then also from the idea of a scripted series. I mean, we, we're talking about just her TV show, but she just was such a complicated and interesting woman who took a lot of agency for her life from birth till the choices she made upon retirement. So we're working right now to develop the story uh, with a production house in Los Angeles, and we've attached a writer to uh, just working on the pilot at the moment, and we'll see if we can bring her to the TV screen once more. <laughs> 
Well, and there are so many great stories because I had uh, part of my research. I ended up getting to interview Skitch Henderson and, uh, you know, was on a trip to New York City and got to sit down and chat with him. And boy, he had stories. And particularly the other piece we haven't brought up. She was a total socialite, like a New York City socialite and uh, drinker. And uh, after sh- her show, which, as we mentioned, is a late night show, she would go to the bars and get in literally bar fights. Skitch Henderson told me about this. She would punch people. She would like punch guys who were being jerks to her. And I just that sounded so cool to me. I mean, I don't want to encourage anyone to go get drunk and get in bar fights. But if you're a woman in the 1950s and you're hosting a TV show, that's really awesome that after your show to go punch someone who's, um, you know, I'm assuming probably she was being like sexually harassed or something like that. And so hearing these stories of what sheer energy she had to have, you know, I just she's utterly fascinating. So I think, yeah, there's there's great stories that could be told about her. Yeah. Things were crazy at the stork club. That's where, that's where all the action went down. <laughs> and she was, she would say, I, I studied judo and I have a strong arm, you know, strong arm. There's videos of her arm wrestling, you know, major stars on <laughs> television. It's fantastic. Well, and you look at the, the list of guests that she has and it was clear she knew a lot of people. You yeah. Know, because a lot of these people were, were friends of her. You know, I think she was friends with Frank Sinatra she was friends with Gypsy Rose Lee, who was on the show, and in part because they were friends. So, yeah, she had an amazing life. Yeah, let's listen to a clip of one of her famous friends. Hi. Just been going over some of the mail. Excuse me a minute while I check a few of them. Oh, here's a letter that says, uh, what do you do with your old earrings? Wrong letter. Somebody else, I'm sure. This is a very interesting letter I've had, uh, from a young lady who uh, would like to come and talk with me uh, concerning a career in television, and I've asked her to come over. And uh, if you'll move in here about now, I'd like you to meet Miss... Uh, uh, what did you say your name was, ma'am? Oh, Faye Emerson. Sam Emerson? Oh, Faye Emerson. Emerson. Oh, I see. Well, uh, you uh, wrote and said that you'd like to make a living in television. Uh, what do you think you'd like to do? Well... <clears throat> I have been in television for a while, but uh, I'm limited. I, I only oh, can I talk. Oh, I see what you mean. You, uh... I, uh, I, everybody else can sing or dance or tell jokes, and I just seem to be able to chatter about nothing. And I Do you thought, wrestle a little bit, maybe? Yes, uh, a little indie well, wrestling. Mm-hmm. But, uh, that might do for a while. I think that they have better ones on television than I could ever approach. <laughs> when did you, uh, uh, or rather, when you first realized your limitations, what did you decide that you might like to try to do? Well, I thought if I could learn to sing a little bit and dance a little bit, that I might have more to offer. Sing a little bit. Well, I think that you've come to the right place, you know. Have you thought about... uh, uh, First, let me ask you this. Anyone in your family ever had a musical career? Well, uh, my son, Scoop, has a leaning toward the piano. Mm -hmm. And I'm related by marriage to a gentleman who who plays the piano. Oh, really? That's very nice. Um, Well, tell me this. Uh, would you, have you thought about being coached and singing? Well, you know, I thought about that. I wondered if I could get, say, somebody like Bing Crosby to help me. I thought I might really get somewhere. Well, if you like that style of singing, that's perfectly all right. It's a little old-fashioned <laughs> at the time. You know, that's for the long underwear, round haircut crew. Now, I've been known to uh, give some pointers to several people who have done quite well oh, really? uh, in the singing world. Yes, I'd be very happy to help you if you'd like me to. Well, um... I don't know very much about your qualifications. Could you maybe show me a little sample of what you do? Well, yes, I'd be very happy to audition for you as your coach. Uh, 
If we could uh, get a bell tone from somewhere, I'd be very happy to give you a few choice notes. How glad the many millions of Annabelles and Lillians would be to capture me. But you had such persistence, you wore down my resistance. I fell, and it was swell. I'm your big and brave and handsome Romeo. Yummy. How I won you, I shall never, never know. It's not that you're attractive, but oh, my heart grew active when you came into view. I've got a crush on you, sweetie pie, all the day and night time. Uh, Mary, your point there about how, you know, she had these friends, she just seemed like a fascinating person to be around, as Maureen brought up, you know, she's kind of really smart, could talk about any topic. Um, So she had to be a really fun person just to hang around with and talk to because she had such a breadth of knowledge and she was funny. um, So she had to be a real fun person to be around. And that, again, is something that came across in the, you know, as much as a personality can come across in an archival collection that did come across, like uh, Maureen brought up that there's you know, so many bits and pieces of, of her life in those materials and very much just kind of the intellectual energy she had is draped throughout that entire collection. When I was going through all her photos just one afternoon, I noted in almost every picture that wasn't a staged photo, she either had a newspaper tucked under her arm or was holding a dog. She was a huge <laughs> animal person um, and just an avid reader and just I mean you could do a whole series of just her with her newspapers just getting off planes on planes on buses off she goes um she was also a really progressive civil rights activist and especially I think Eleanor Roosevelt was a big influence on that Uh, some of the research I've been looking into lately is Eleanor really wanted to make sure that before Faye left the United States that they did the Civil Rights March that happened in D.C. And Eleanor had passed away, but Faye Emerson stuck around to do that march. And then right after that is when she got on a boat to sail around the world and then ended up staying in Majorca, Spain, where she settled down and ended up retiring. She ended up dying of stomach cancer mm. uh, all too early. I think she died at the age of 65. It was March 9th, 1983 in her home. And, you know, way too early. And at that point, when she had left New York and left the entertainment buzz, there was National Enquirer articles and all things saying that she was kicked out and she had gained weight and, you know, left in just kind of like a blaze of sadness and shame. And it was just the opposite. When you go through her photos, I'm yeah. sure both of you have seen, is she was partying and yeah. having a blast in Spain. <laughs> she truly was having a blast. And she had always said, even in earlier interviews, and she had a she had a newspaper column. She was doing radio shows all along the way while she was uh, in New York. But she had said, "I want to garden. I want to get fat. I want to wear moo-moos and bad makeup and enjoy myself." And she did. She like at that point, she took control once again. Like she was not afraid to just be done with fame and actually walk away from the industry at a time when everybody else was kind of scrapping to hang on. So I think she ended it well. Yeah. And that whole story, I remember 
you know, when you are working on a dissertation and you're getting, you know, very deeply into material, there's some stuff that you're just like tired of and then some stuff that you just can't get enough of. And so the two figures that I researched that I could not get enough of were Ida Lupino and then Faye Emerson, just such inspirational women. And they did what they had to, like they gave concessions where they had to, to get where they were, but only so far. And then they were going to make other people deal with them, you know, as much as they could. And especially just that idea that, yeah, she said, see ya, I'm going to Spain. I'm done with y'all. And, and particularly, you know, you always hear stories about how, about how hard it is for, you know, celebrities when the prime of their career is over to deal with losing the spotlight and all that. And she was like, see ya, I'm good. I'm out. You know, just the, the boldness of that. And it just, it's just such a great story. So again, looking forward from the archival perspective, Mary, uh, what's left to do in terms of um, finishing up with making the, the rest of the Faye Emerson collection available? Yeah, so the main thing is just uh, getting the existing Word document finding aid uh, into shape that it can be put online. And that's really it. And unfortunately, yeah, the pandemic has put a pause on that so close to having it ready to go, but we need to be in the building to be able to look at the boxes to really get everything into shape. One of the things I did a year ago when we first started working from home is uh, I put descriptions for every episode onto IMDb. So if people are curious, they, oh, can, go, great. they can go to IMDb and, and see the descriptions for, for every show that we have, not only for the Famerson show, but also for Wonderful Town USA. Yeah, it's frustrating. Like I said, we're so close to having, yeah. it, having it ready to go, um, but it's going to have to wait a, a little bit longer, unfortunately. Well, and that's a great idea to put that information on IMDb, because the other piece of this is we want the wider public to know about her. And so not just, you know, other researchers, that's great, but um, also the more the public can know about her. And so even someone sort of happening across that material, that's that's great. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, you guys know such wide variety of people that she had on the show, you know, famous people. But then because she was so relatable, she had a lot of people who would write in, you know, asking her for advice. Like, how do I become a cameraman? How do I become an artist? And she would have these people on the show and introduce them to people who could possibly help them become what they wanted to become. You know, everyone from Dale Carnegie to, you know, Maria Tallchief, the Native American ballerina, John Gilgood, Salvador Dali, there's really something for everybody in her collection. Well, we hope we have impressed and amazed you now with the story of Faye Emerson and with also the value of archiving, because this wouldn't happen if, if not for an archive. All of this, maybe it's not too much of an overstatement, say she would be lost to history if it wasn't for this archival material. So, so thank you, Mary, and your archival family for, for making this available. And then uh, thank you, Maureen, also then for doing more research on her, um, because this has just come back so wonderfully into life and making me remember the, the stuff that I originally worked on. Um, any final thoughts you want to share? Anything we haven't covered that you wanted to, to bring up? Well, I'd just like to give a shout out to Scoop Crawford, her son, because yeah. he was the one who, who kept all this material for all those years and managed to somehow find the WCFTR and send it to us. So, you know, the importance of a family member really appreciating and taking care of his mother's legacy. Yeah, definitely. Again, you know, I said at the beginning that I, I felt like I was kind of honoring what he had started, and it was so gratifying to be able to do that. 
I would just offer as a PhD graduate student, finding my way is love your neighborhood archivist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have found, and even in my dissertation work now, which is the history of standards and practices, is trying to find this information and figure it out what's out there is, is an impossible feat unless you treat and respect and learn to absorb everything humanly possible from somebody like Mary, who is just so fantastic. And the digital archivists uh, at WCFT are past and present as well. As a graduate student, if anybody is listening, get into those archives and then take the time. Don't be too proud to ask a lot of questions and to also listen and hear and follow those trails, because there's a lot of information out there that needs researched to then be rescued. If I hadn't requested those kinescopes, they might still be sitting on the shelf just getting older and older and more impossible to save. And they're the only existing versions of the Famerson show that are out there in the universe, as far as we can understand. CBS's archives are no longer. Uh, So yes, love your neighborhood archivist. And thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, Mary brought up the pandemic. Of course, there's a lot of archival work that isn't happening right now because of the pandemic, but uh, we seem to at least be nearing the end of that scope. And so, you know, I've heard many predictions that we're due for another roaring 20s once we're all able to take our masks and, and go out in the street and stand next to people. Um, so maybe we're, we're on for a roaring 20s in the archives, too. Like just a absolute joy of, of research will be uh, will happen across the, the 2020s as well. We can only hope. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much both for, for joining me. This is a really great conversation. And uh, I hope at the very least we've piqued you know, interest in Faye Emerson and also in getting people into archives. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. That is so good. That is so primo material there. I am very grateful uh, for having the chance to, to listen to this. I was so happy with that conversation because going into it, I thought, you know, a big thing was I just I want people to know about how amazing Faye, uh, Faye Emerson was. And, you know, Maureen delivered such really great insights and Mary, too, about the insights of that, that kind of archival perspective and, uh, you know, honoring her son who had donated these materials. It just really got such a strong vibe and inspiration from that conversation. And, you know, all of the, it seems like all of the men in her life uh, have kind of groovy names. Skitch. Scoop and Skitch and Stank and (laughs) Stink and like, it's all good. Yeah. She hung out with some fascinating people. She did. You know, she, she, you had to be interesting, I think, for her to like you. I mean, someone who's that smart and that worldly, um, you have to be really smart, savvy, and maybe even strange in some way to to kind of keep her engaged because that's what you know she just had a really active active mind super uh active i would love to have uh, been a fly on the wall when when she's talking to eleanor roosevelt oh my goodness can you imagine i mean just yeah just just such amazing personalities and uh so completely different uh but both really really fascinating well and the prospect that she is 
perhaps making a comeback now is pretty amazing. So Maureen talked about the television show that's in the works um, that she's currently pitching. And also she recently appeared, Maureen recently appeared on CNN. They are running that series, The Story of Late Night. And the very first episode features um, a few minutes on Faye Emerson and um, a bit of the clip that one of the clips that you heard in this episode. So and Maureen just knocked it out of the park with her. Uh, and of course, she only got like a minute or two to talk about Faye Emerson because then, of course, it's on. Let's now talk about the guys for the remainder of the right. series. Um, but Maureen got her three or four minutes to talk about Faye Emerson. It just really crushed it, did a really great job of talking about why Faye Emerson mattered. So it's great to see Faye Emerson on television again. More bounce to the ounce. Indeed. That wake up tang. Maybe that's what we should start saying. Our, 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 Are you uh, feeling podcast. that wake up tang? <laughs> our podcast will bring you that wake up tang. Yeah. Well, we want this podcast, in fact, to have more tang. You know, sometimes it feels like it could use a little bit more tang. Yeah, so if you out there have some tang you can bring to this episode, we want you. We're basically looking for more help. We are. We would love to have um, more voices involved. And I I know that uh, sounds a little bit like a cop-out, especially from me, because uh, I have been so uh, not involved in the... uh, TV pandemic series that did such great content over the past year, and and you've been much more involved in that. Um, But honestly, this show is better when we have more people in the mix. So if you have an episode idea, or if you'd like to maybe pitch a segment or get involved in some other kind of way, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I think that's been one of the lessons, many, many lessons coming from the Talking TV in a, a Time of Crisis series, but one of them being the more voices we can bring on here, the better, the more perspectives, the more uh, scholars at different stations of life in different countries. And that's not easy for us to do if it's just the, you know, a small handful of us trying to do this. And so if you want to host a roundtable, if you have a dream scholar you've always wanted an excuse to talk to, uh, come at us with pitch your idea, pitch your idea to nothing, us. There's nothing Nothing that opens doors like an Acamedia press card. I mean, you just call up and boom, they're just like, they'll talk to you. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. we got it. We got a, we got a website. We got everything. We're legit. Yeah, we are legit. You know, just, there's one area where I think we could use a little bit more uh, help in particular. Yeah. I feel like every great publication has, has an advice column. You hmm. know, I mean, we've got. I mean, of course, there's, you know, there's Dear Abby and Ann Landers and, uh, you know, anchoring the daily newspaper for, for so many years. But even like the New York Times Magazine, my favorite column in that mm. is the diagnosis. You know, right. it's like yeah. some wacky thing and then people have to try and figure it out. And then they bring in experts like, well, actually, it's this. And I figured it out and I solved it. And I love that stuff. And I kind of feel like we need one. Like, like, we need somebody who can answer the question of, like, where's the best seat in a movie theater? Mm, right. Do you have questions? I mean, I, like, I got all kinds of questions that I would like to have answered. Right. Like, should you ruin movies for your kids? Shout out to a group of friends on the Slack. who They know who they are for a great question like that. So, like, point out how the Lion King is racist. Should you do that or should uh, you just let you them totally, have their you innocent You totally, fun? totally, totally <laughs> should. Okay, well, we answered that one (laughs) then. Um, Yeah, and I think this could be anything from, like, what movie would you recommend a couple watch on their first date to serious ones that we're all invested in, like, is it okay to teach a Woody Allen film right now? Or how do you teach a Woody Allen film right now? Oh, yeah. I I don't want to try to answer that. 
well, that's why we need someone to come you help know, us. We what do, we kind of need do. is we need our own Faye Emerson to answer we the do. mail, right? We so, do. We need somebody who's, who's reaches um, broad, whose interests are uh, polyamorous, whose mm-hmm. energy and curiosity are, are lively and engaging. You know what we need? I think we need a cinematologist. We need a cinematologist. We do need a cinematologist. And you know what else we need? What? We need a jingle. Oh, that might be maybe the biggest takeaway of the Faye Emerson segment was how important a jingle is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, do you have more bounce to the ounce? You're going to remember that forever. I mean, we need like a... Ask a cinematologist. If you know, only we like had, that. if only we had a an experienced sound designer and yeah. music composer on oh, our no. team. Man, I wish we could ask a cinematologist. Hey, wait a minute, Todd. Ask a cinematologist. So. If you think you might have an inner cinematologist, or if you want to nominate somebody, uh, let us know. Love that idea. Yeah. So, uh, or you and a group of friends, you can kind of pass the work off. Oh, of... it could, it could, this could totally be like the Dread Pirate Roberts. Ooh, yes. Where, you know, the, there could be lots of people who could actually be the cinematologist, but they have to step into persona and put on the mask and then, you know, kill off the crew and... Well, I like that idea. If you want to be, well, this could be, you could put your name to it. Or if you want to be anonymous, if you just want to throw out some cool ideas without having to worry about any of the consequences of attaching your name to that, anonymous is good too. Yeah. And, you know, like if you want to wear one of those like eyes wide shut masks or something, could be super Illuminati sex cult about it. That'd be okay too. Okay. Yeah. We could make this creepy too if we want to do that. (laughs) Sorry. And also, if you have questions, if you have questions you want answered, we've given you a few examples there of things you would want to ask a cinematologist about. Um, But give us your burning questions, and we'll see if we can find someone to answer them. Okay. The pitch has been made. The gauntlet has been laid down. I suppose we should give our contact information then. Yeah. Uh, where would where would one find us at around <laughs> against? Okay, we have an email, which usually is spam, and people saying, here's this resource that you should put on this episode of, you know, from eight years ago on your website. Oh, and like so- when the NRA wrote to us and wanted <laughs> us to do a, a piece on Charlton Heston. Yeah, right. Well, that, you know... You know, more often they're much more boring than that. It's like some dumb guide or infographic or whatever. But yeah, the Charlton Heston one, that was that was memorable. Yeah. Or we often get threats. There's some Acomedia in the UK that's an actual company and they don't always pay their bills. And so we get emails of like, you know, past due notices and we have to be like, we don't have a budget. We don't have a, an account. We don't know what you're talking about. So but this if you're feeling be, past due on contacting us, you can write to us at Aka hyphen media. How do email addresses work? Is that there's an at, right? Yeah, there is. Aka hyphen media at. No, it's info at oh, aka media dot Info. It's been a while since I've used it. Info at aka hyphen media dot org. See you now can I need catch a jingle. Us on Twitter as well. Yes, aka underscore media. You know the thing that I love about this is I can set up the pitch, and then you are the one that who has to remember the uh, actual <laughs> language, the syntax. Which is not my strong suit. We shouldn't we shouldn't be doing it that way, right? <laughs> it's not my strong suit either. <laughs> so. 
I didn't write it down this time. See, that's my mistake. I need to write yeah. it down. But yeah, or also, you know, you can find us. You can Google my name. You'll find my email address there. Um, you can you can find us any number of ways. And uh, and yeah, so again, if you want to produce a segment, if you want to host a roundtable or just organize one, you can sit in the background and just listen. If you want to make other people talk, uh, that's what I do in the talking TV series. I just sit there and listen and other people do smart things um, or pitch us an idea or uh, send us your burning questions or volunteer to be a cinematologist. Right on. Okay. Are you watching anything good this summer? There's one show I'm watching that I'm obsessed with. Um, there's a bunch of things I've been watching that a lot of people are talking about, but this one is a little bit under the radar. Um, it's a British import on Peacock, and mm -hmm. it's called We Are Lady Parts. And it's a sitcom, six-episode comedy, and it is set in London for um, Muslim women in a punk rock band. I've and heard I about like, this. I yeah. totally want to see this. And I don't even need to tell you anymore that like you hear Muslim women in a punk rock band in London, like boom, it's sold. But it's so good. And it's not just engaging because it's very you know refreshing, different kind of representation. It's genuinely funny. It genuinely rocks out. Like some of these songs are great. They do a cover of nine to five. That is incredible. And I, I want to, you know, find it on iTunes or whatever. Um, and also I'll mention there's, there's a, uh, an episode ender in episode three that leaves you kind of devastated. And then episode four is so good and, and, and kind of uplifting. And so that the artistry of, and I love episodic television. So not just, you know, oh, it's a 10 hour movie, that kind of thing. But the idea of crafting an episode and giving you an episodic experience with seriality to it. It's not just, doesn't have to be just episodic, but that idea of like crafting an episode and from episodes three to four, it's so beautifully done. It's just, it's great TV. Oh, nice. Nice, nice, nice. I am a hundred percent in. I'm looking forward to watching that. So it's, we are Lady Parts. Yeah. So the name of the band is Lady Parts, which is a great name for band. Period. Yep. And then the TV show is uh, the series title. Um, so it aired on, or it's currently airing on Channel Four in the UK, and Peacock has picked it up. Nice. I've just started watching Hacks on oh. your recommendation. Yes. Crazy good. Gene Very Smart. Good. It's it's the smart is, smart -assance, the Renaissance of Gene Smart. Oh With yeah. that mayor Man, of Easttown. She is so great. Mm. Um, I'm only a couple of episodes in, but I was thinking about that show when I was listening to your Faye Emerson conversation, honestly, you know, with yeah. the, um, that kind of, it's not super tightly connected to the uh, bio of any particular star, like, you know, like Joan Rivers or someone, but um, it definitely makes, makes for uh, an interesting opportunity to reflect on the, on the history of, of um, those kinds of prominent uh, women in comedy and women in TV. Yeah, and there's an episode, it's one of the later ones, so I don't, if, if you're not finished, you might not have seen it yet, so I'll be a little bit vague, but there's a scene set in a comedy club, and Jean Smart, basically, uh, her character, excuse me, her character, um, gives even better than she gets from a real, you know, alpha male in the comedy club, and it reminds me of that idea of Faye Emerson being in a bar, and someone's giving her crap, and she punches them. And again, don't want to advocate for violence necessarily. Uh, but that idea of the frustration of having to deal with that and finally just not being able to take it anymore. And so there is a, yeah. a triumphant scene in Hacks that is in that ballpark. All right. Well, I'm going to keep watching then for sure. 
Yeah. And they do, I have to know, because they make a reference to her character a few times that she could have been the first, uh, you know, tel- uh, the first late night TV host. And unfortunately, the writers of Hacks, I feel like we should send them this podcast because they need to know about Faye Emerson because she wouldn't have, and I know it's fictional, but uh, even in that fictional world, she wouldn't have been the first because Faye Emerson was the first. She'd been there. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have and to And you know that who we have to thank for that? Your neighborhood archivist. Your neighborhood archivist. You should totally love your neighborhood archivist because they are the, you know, people talk about journalists being the, uh, you know, sort of writing the first draft of history. Honestly, archivists are so incredibly important. They do Hmm. such amazing work. Uh, Not just, they, they don't just gather the material and keep it safe. They really illuminate it and build pathways into it and um, are an incredibly important part of the historical process. Yeah, and just listen to Maureen's comment about it. Like, she wouldn't have known about this collection without Mary and that idea of, like, Mary really pushing her. Like, you need to look at this, right? And and understanding, and especially that, you know, the knowledge that an archivist has of what's there, what's important, why it matters. Like, an incredible breadth of knowledge that archivists have. And so, yeah, it's, uh, they're more than just curators. They're more than just guides. They kind of do it all. So love your neighborhood archivist. Go visit the archive. Take them some, okay, you can't, like, I guess you could take them cookies. They can't eat them in the room, but you know, you could like <laughs> give them some to take home. Or give them a coupon for There you go. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually then before then we depart i'll plug my other uh, one of our other spinoff broadcasts presenting the past which is in conjunction with the american archive of public broadcasting and all their digitized archives and that has been a real thrill um, to do that one we've got two episodes down more to come including a an incredible guest uh, i'm not going to say it i don't want to jinx it but in one of the most important people in television history i'm going to get to interview for that podcast so look for that in a couple this one's of months big it's big big time yeah i'm looking forward to it too but we can't say anything more about that just yet. Don't want to spoil it. Tamp it down. Yep. All right. Acamedia is produced with the help of the University of Notre Dame and Denison University. And, the, and supported by the Society for Cinnamon Media Studies. Sometimes against, mostly for. <laughs> Usually. On their best days. Uh, we're also really grateful to our amazing producing team, including uh, Jingle Man himself, Todd Thompson, down in uh, Austin, Texas. Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University, but also in Winnipeg somewhere. Stephanie Brown, now at Westchester University. Joel Neville Anderson at Purchase College. With a freshly minted PhD. Yes, indeed. And Frank Mondelli at Stanford. We're also very grateful to Maureen Mock uh, and Mary Helsbeck at the University of Wisconsin, who were so kind to spend their time talking to Chris about this amazing figure in TV history. Yeah, and thank you, Faye Emerson. Do what I ask you, won't you? (laughs) 